All right. My name's Tanner Lowe. Hi, everybody. I don't know what all this stuff is. You're in charge of holding my LaCroix. Hi, everybody. How are you guys doing? Hi. I'm great. I'm the college director here. So you have to listen to me. Where are the seniors in the room? Guys, what's up? We're going to be friends real soon. Not yet, but soon. All right. So this weekend's a 30-hour famine. Who's doing the 30-hour famine this weekend? Awesome. Awesome. I love the 30-hour famine. I love the 30-hour famine. I love seeing you guys excited about serving. I love seeing you guys excited about what gets Jesus excited, serving those who are needy, poverty-stricken, who just need some love, who need practical things. I love seeing hearts changed. Um, and one of the main ways that I've seen this in my life, I worked at a homeless shelter for, for almost a year over in North Carolina. Um, and I got to see some radical things. I got to see life change in powerful ways. I've gotten to see people who have just been hurt, people suffering from mental illness, people suffering from all kinds of things. And I've got to see Jesus do radical, radical things in people's lives. I remember one morning specifically, it was a winter morning because it was freezing. North Carolina has actual winter and snow, um, I'm, although L.A. did get snow recently. Did you see that? It was very dramatic. Yeah. Look it up later. Um, and I was walking into my office at this homeless shelter, and as always, there was a line of people outside waiting to get into the warmth. And I opened the door and let them in, and then I remember sitting down across the table from, from this older man and talking with him. This picture, a big guy, bigger than me, um, a gruff, you know, just sun-damaged skin, kind of smelly, wearing dirty clothes, black speckled beard, um, and I'm sitting across the table from this guy, and we're talking about his journey, we're talking about where he's been, what he's done, we're talking about how he's been hurt and how he's been helped by different people, and so I was talking to him, because after I worked there, I had so many friends asking me, like, what can I actually do to help somebody in need like that? You know, I'm walking down the street and somebody's asking for money, what's the best thing to do? Um, and so we were talking about the logistics of that and, and practical ways you can help, giving money, giving warm food, that type of thing. Um, but one of the power, most powerful things that he to told me that's just kind of shaped my life after that is the power of when somebody's walking down the street and he asks them for money, the power of just when somebody simply turns and faces the person asking for money and looks them in the eye and says, Hi, how are you doing? and shakes their hand. And it's a simple thing, but there's something so powerful about that. When all the homeless person is expecting is for the person to kind of pick up their pace or walk to the other side of the road or avoid eye contact at all costs, the power of making eye contact, saying hi, and shaking their hand can change a person's day, can change a person's life, even if you don't have something to give them. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about just the power of that moment, of giving that person a moment of dignity and respect and recognizing their humanity and their worth in God's eyes, in your eyes. 
that can change a person's life. And it's this power, I'm thinking of the handshake, this power of touch that's so central to who we are as people. And we're in the relationship series, hashtag relationship goals. Who has their RAM chart here tonight? Anybody? Anybody? I, w I had a prize if somebody had their RAM chart here. Um, veto. That counts. Um, but the RAM chart, you get the idea. You got to know somebody more than you trust them. You got to trust them more than you rely on them. You got to rely on them more than you commit to them. And you got to commit to them more than you touch them. Right? Amen. Can we all go home now? Um, and saying the words, you got to commit more than you touch them, sounds kind of weird. Maybe it's a weird way of saying it. But even when I say that, it sounds a little funny. You've probably giggled about the touch lever of the RAM chart so far the last few weeks. Um, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, how did we get to a point where such a basic, natural part of who, what it means to be human has become twisted so that, it, so that it is something weird or awkward or sexualized and just awkward to talk about so that we giggle and laugh about it? And I was thinking about touch because touch, and we're going to talk about touch and sexual touch, so get ready. Um, I was thinking about touch according to the Bible, in God's perspective. And I was thinking about the book of Genesis. At the beginning of the book of Genesis, God's creating a whole bunch of things, and he creates Adam and Eve, and he talks about them joining together and becoming one flesh. And all of this, is, God says, is good. God says is tov. It's the Hebrew word tov. Say tov. That's the Hebrew word for good. But it's also good in a way that's pleasing or satisfying or enjoyable or lovely. You know, in the Bible, the sweet taste of honey is tov, or, or relaxing after a long day of work is tov, or shade under a tree in the hot desert on a summer day is called tov in the Bible. And in the same sense, touch, sexual touch in the Bible is tov. It's good. Um, in fact, it's the first command in the Bible, if you can believe it. God creates Adam and Eve, and what does he tell him? Be fruitful and multiply. Go have sex. I'm not going to end the sermon there. We're going to keep talking. But it's the first command. It's, it's so important and it's so good. And I feel like the world has this perspective on the church's view of sex as, you know, it's lesser. You've got to avoid it at all costs. Don't talk about it. It's awkward. But in reality, God's got this beautiful transformational picture of what sex is. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Touch, sexual touch, it's a basic human need. Um, it's a basic part of what we are, we're created for. We've got sex parts, man. We got them for a reason. I'm not saying that everybody has to have sex at some point in their life, but it is part of what we were made for. So let's talk about it. If sex, in, according to Genesis, according to the Bible, according to God, if touch and sexual touch is a gift, then how come it's become what it has in our culture, in our world? I think it's because, like we always do with gifts, we mess it up and we make it gods. We make gods out of our gifts. So think of the Israelites in the book of Exodus. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, slaves to the Egyptians. Um, and they cried out to God and prayed to him, and they asked for deliverance, and God came through and delivered them. And as they were being delivered out of Egypt, what happens? 
God causes the Egyptians to give them all their silver and gold. So 400 years of slavery is then transformed into deliverance and riches and wealth. Rags to riches, I've ever heard it. And what happens a few chapters later? So quick. How quick we are to forget how God works in our lives. So quickly, in a few chapters later in Exodus, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. You know the story. Um, And immediately the Israelites are like, where'd Moses go? What happened to God? And they start complaining and they start whining and they look to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they're like, make us gods to follow. Make us gods to lead us through the wilderness. And they they make a golden calf. And Aaron makes them this golden calf. And what do they make it out of? The gold that they got from... Thank you. Jesus, everybody. They make it out of the gold. The gold that they got from the Egyptians. So the gift that God gave them in Egypt is just as quickly becoming a God to be worshipped. And I think that's analogous to what we do with all the gifts in our lives, or what we can do with all the gifts in our lives. And I think it's analogous to what we do with sex. Not just sex in and of itself, but sexual touch, sexual cravings, lust. We, do, we make it kind of a God to be followed at all costs, a craving to always indulge. Because when sex becomes our God, your whole identity is wrapped around that expression. So you are now a person who is identified by the person that you're attracted to. Or when sex is your God, you have to download porn. Or when sex is your God, you have to sleep with your boyfriend or do whatever you want. You have to give into your body's cravings, even if you know it's going to steal from your future joy. See, when sex is your God, it actually becomes your master. It becomes what you're enslaved to. And we've got this idea in our world that freedom, the true freedom, is to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. And that's not Jesus' view of, of freedom. Freedom, according to Jesus, is the ability to do what you were created to do. And freedom in that view is God has created you with a purpose, with a a goal, an end in mind, a calling. That if you are free to fulfill that, that's true freedom, not the slavery of going back to what you left in Egypt. And so sex can become a God in a sense in our culture and in our individual lives because it can be so powerful. And that's kind of my second point. I want to look at 1 Corinthians. Adam, if you got it. Um, So this is 1 Corinthians 6, and Paul's going to talk about oneness here. Oneness um, in relationship to Genesis and man and woman, and a pretty messed up instance here. He starts, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. This is the Greek word, ume genoita, which is the strongest negation. Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And so what I see Paul talking about here to the Corinthians, and just a quick background on Corinth. It was kind of like the Las Vegas of our day, and think of all the stereotypes of sexualized Las Vegas. Um, It was a port town, so sailors were coming in and out all the time. And so it became a hub of prostitution to the point that the name Corinthian, somebody from Corinth, was used as kind of a slur for prostitute. I don't know what you call a a person from Tustin. Tustinian? Tustinian? 
But think about being, that was a euphemism for a prostitute. That would, you'd be bummed out. Um, but Paul talks about it in this, in this powerful sense. He's, he goes on to say, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. You see, the Corinthians had viewed sex as if it was food. And you know, when, you, when you're hungry, you eat food, right? You satisfy that craving. And when you want sex, you go see a prostitute. And that was their perspective that Paul's responding to in this letter. And what he says is, no, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That word that he uses for sexual immorality is pornea, and it's where we get the word for porn, pornography. Um, but really, it's a junk drawer term, meaning that you know, it carries a lot of different meanings. It means basically anything outside of sexuality any form of sexuality expressed outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Everything from sleeping with your boyfriend, friends with benefits, which, by the way, stop. <laughs> if that's happening, no. <laughs> Even if you're not a believer following Jesus, no, stop. Okay, friends with benefits, uh, casual sex, adultery, prostitution, porn, raunchy movies, all is described as pornea and is just a cheap parody of what God intended for sex to be between a husband and wife. So Paul says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? And then he quotes the Genesis story again. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. In essence, God's saying, don't you get it? I don't have a lower view of sex. I don't have a smaller understanding of what it is. I don't think it's dirty and lesser or whatever. I have a more powerful understanding of it. It's mysterious, it's transformative, it's so powerful. That's why it has to be used in this careful way because it'll overtake you otherwise. So God's view of sex is so much higher than ours. And when I was asking myself, what does this look like for high schoolers? And as the college guy, I know what it looks like for college students. Not often good. Um, and so I've been thinking about relationships and providentially I had two conversations with students today on different sides of the spectrum that I'll talk about. I won't name names. Um, but so often what I see is people rushing in um, to, to go too far physically in their relationship too fast that results in them dating for too long. That's the common thing. They go too far too fast and then they're in the relationship for too long. And why is that? It's because sex is powerful. And sexual touch bonds, bonds two people in such a way spiritually, but also neurobiologically. The brain releases chemicals during sex that rewires the brain. And I could get into it more. I'll throw around a lot of fancy words like neurotransmitters. Whoa. Um, but it releases, releases these three types of neurotransmitters that bonds our brain and and causes us to want to be connected to the person, committed to the person, forever. And what happens is, when, you, when that is just willy-nilly at the beginning of a relationship, you start to overlook red flags. You start to overlook a lot of problems. You start to overlook them mistreating you. You start to overlook counsel from family and friends who are saying, they don't treat you very well. They're not a very good person. You should not be with that person. No, you don't hear that because you've already gone so far, you've done so much, you're committed to that person, both in a social sense and also in your brain. 
And so instead of what could have been a relationship ending in a casual way, benevolently just leaving, parting of ways, becomes a few years that ends in pain and regret and heartache. Because you, when you have sex with a person outside of marriage, you become one with that person without the safety of a life-giving, sacrificial, committed marriage that God created. Now inside of marriage, this same bonding process is so powerful to connect you. And, and what it does is, I've heard psychologists say that it essentially gets you addicted in a good way to your spouse so that you fall more and more in love with them and, and, and go deeper and deeper into that relationship. And honestly, Paul counsels later on in 1 Corinthians, he says, uh, flee from sexual immorality. And how does he counsel married couples to do that? He says, have sex and have sex a lot. That is spiritual advice when you're married. Um, but here's what I kind of want to land on, and then we'll go into small groups if we have time. I don't see a clock. Paul closes this whole section, like I said, by saying, flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Run from sexual immorality. Run from anything that would tempt you. Run the other direction. And I know it's, it's, it seems funny because I'm saying sex a lot, but Paul is calling us to live a different type of life. And here's what frustrates me so much about this conversation that I have all the time, is people asking me, you know, where's the line? How far is too far? When in reality, what they're asking is, how close can I get to sin without having to say sorry? How close can I get to sin by still thinking that, that I'm following Jesus? But Paul is saying, flee from sexual immorality. And the reality of what he's saying is, you're supposed to follow Jesus and run after Jesus. And when you're running after Jesus, you're necessarily running away from something else. You're necessarily running away from sin and the old life. And friends, let me tell you, this might not be popular to say, but Jesus does not need any more half-hearted believers. He doesn't need any more people who are holding on to so many other things, holding on to the sins that they just love so much and are not willing to lay it down even though he laid his life down for us. Jesus is pretty harsh in the Gospels. And what I'm thinking is, if you're asking questions like, how much, how much close can I get to sin without actually having to be sorry about it, then you might not understand this whole conversation about sex, but more importantly, you might not understand what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm not saying that to judge you. I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm saying that because I want you to reevaluate how you're walking with him, what you think it means to be a Christian, what you, mean, what you think it means to follow Jesus. And then the final thing I want to talk about is just because maybe what I've said so far isn't for you. Um, and what I mean by that is maybe you've already gone too far. Maybe you've already done some stuff that you regret. Maybe, you, maybe things have been done to you and you're suffering through that now. Um, and what you're feeling is not so much, oh, Tanner, I don't want to do that. What you're feeling is, I've already experienced all this, and I, I want nothing more than to be able to go back and change what I've done. And let me tell you, there is so much grace and forgiveness and love for that. Jesus doesn't need you to be perfect in your past. He just wants everything that you've got exactly as you've got it right now. And he can heal that, and he can redeem that, and he can make things beautiful out of the worst mess.
and no matter what you've done. And so I guess that's where we'll end it. Your, your past decisions are completely unchangeable. That's true. But with Jesus, they're not irredeemable. Your past is not your prison if Jesus is your future. Amen? Would you pray with me? God, thank you for how you've created us to be with each other. Thank you for how you've created us in relationship. Thank you for where you're calling us to lay down more of our lives for you. Father, we know that you've given everything for us and that you're the only person we can trust with all of our lives. God, I just ask that you would give us the grace to continue to pursue you now, to seek after you, to seek after your will, to seek after your will in small groups, in conversation with each other. Would you just bless this time? Would your spirit dwell there? Would you continue to move powerfully in the hearts of these students? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.